Okay, I think we're live. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. How you doing? Uh, all right. Um, it's December. We're almost done with 2016. How? Like, not that we need to talk about the weather, um, but can I just ask, <laughs> what is it like up there? In Connecticut, it is sunny, and it's been all right up here. I'm guessing there in southern Florida, it's been ultra nice. Yeah, I'm mostly using this as a setup to begin, you know, the next, like, three or four months of just, like, slowly rubbing it in. Oh, <laughs> like, you did that oh, last yeah. year. I know, I know. It's <laughs> It's been 78 degrees at the coolest. Um, and, of course, like, down here, everything is spring. So, like, I had this uh, on Instagram the other day. I posted, like, a photo of this, like, mutant caterpillar that, like, landed on my neck. Um, <gasps> what? And, um, it, well, it's just something I'd never seen before, like, coming from Michigan, where all the caterpillars are kind of like fuzzy brown and black ones um mm-hmm. but this caterpillar which i found out was was a something something moth caterpillar it had like um it was gray fuzzy with orange spots down its back and its face was like a red cherry and it had like two long like an- antennae or um feelers or whatever with little red dots at the end of them and anyway it scared the shit out of me and <laughs> i was like i was like ah All right. um, important question you say it landed on your neck how did it yeah. get there well i don't know like i'm um, so um i was taking out the trash and the only trees out front are um these uh, royal palms and so they're really tall but i don't know if he was up there or he was just like floating around on the breeze. I I don't know, but I I guess he landed on my neck because like I went back inside and I felt something like tickly, and I'm like ah, ah, and and then, then, like it fell on the floor. Um, but then I did the Good Samaritan thing and I uh I picked it up and took it out to the bushes. Um and but then I tweeted I I I posted the um the photo because I was like what is this thing moth caterpillar. Anyway, the whole point is that they are. They tend to only be found in northern Florida during the spring. And to me, I just was amused because in, down here where I am in, you know, the, the beginning of December, <laughs> it's like, it's effectively like spring. So we have like flowers blooming, caterpillars hatching and cocooning and, you know, like, a, and little baby ducks everywhere, like in the middle, you know, at the beginning <laughs> of winter. So I'm I'm really excited for those memes on Facebook that show the United States plunged in the darkest blues and there where I live is like this nice like cozy orange. <laughs> oh nice. Alright, so I have to tell you one quick thing before we continue. So you know here on Google Talk where you have your uh, little icon which um, the sound waves are bubbling from it or whatever? Yeah. My cat is currently pawing my screen half to death. <laughs> She's like, what is it? All right, all right. So over on our Slack channel, oh, you were talking about um, maybe updating your honeycomb to include ethics. Every so often this comes up and we talk about the ethics of design or there's a post on the ethics of design. There was a recent article by Aaron 
uh, Weinberg titled The Ethics of Good Design, A Principle for the Connected Age, where he adds to basically a list of the 10 principles of good for good design by Dieter Rams. He adds an 11th, good design is ethical. Quote, the product places the user's interests at the center of its purpose. Any effort to influence the user's agency or behavior is in the spirit of their own positive well-being and the well-being of those around them. LibUX has a Slack community with a bunch of people in it. Um, anyone listening to this is welcome to join. It's, it's got an invite-yourself kind of app uh, set up, so you can go to libux.co slash slack. And, yeah, so what we do in there is you know, we share links and we talk shop. So one of us shared this link, and we began to talk about the ethics of library design or library web design. This is a really big setup, but basically what happened is that it began a tangent where I said that basically having or investing the human resources into a native app, so an Android app or an iOS app or something like that, before you already have like a website that's up to snuff, a, um, a mobile-first, responsive, fast, progressively enhanced um, website that is ultimately unethical. I thought it was an interesting conversation, and I thought maybe we would start there and just see where the conversation goes. So we've talked about it several times before about how all the reasons why you really need to have your website be mobile-friendly, not relying on apps, uh, such little things as, like, storage and data usage. Not everybody has a smartphone of a specific brand, um, but you're, to be able to access content, it should be um, more equal without having to rely upon downloading a specific thing. Uh, what else were you thinking in regards to, like, design and ethics in libraries? I think especially in terms of like libraries, nonprofits, or higher ed, I think the core ethical component comes down to a question about the source of your funding. So okay. if that money is publicly funded, either it's coming through taxes or it's coming through tuition, then there is a ethical duty, I think, to design services and spaces and products for the greatest common denominator of those funders. In a for-profit company, you know, the the imperative is to design for the greater common denominator of your customers, but especially in nonprofits and especially in libraries where taxes are so distributed that there's not a core user demographic. Your users are just as likely to be upper middle class millennials as they are senior citizens on Internet Explorer 8 out in the <laughs> boonies. You don't have the benefit of like a specific uh, target audience to design services that are funded by the whole it behooves us to build as widely accessible features as we can. So in web design, this is content and services that fit all assortments of screen sizes and shapes um, and, and specifications, as well as fit 
different kinds of data plans. Some of us have been grandfathered into unlimited data, but increasingly phone plans are, you know, you pay by the gigabyte. Or you just your service is just so shitty that, you know, only a little bit of data trickles through that narrow tributary. Your site and service needs to be like lightweight so it doesn't take, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds to to be able to interact. In the physical space, we have more laws about this. You know, in the U.S., we have the American with Disabilities Act, so we need to be accessible there. But these same concerns, creating services for the greatest common denominator, they apply throughout all channels. So it's not just a, a web thing. It's a capital D design. Whatever the organization is is into or doing or providing, that I think that describes the ethical component. For me, like I... It begins with where's the money coming from. Mm-hmm. But I think in, as an end to itself, it's sufficient as well. So this is a bit of a different spin for what um, you were just discussing. But since I'm now over into the publicity marketing sector of librarianship, um, I have seen some articles and stuff that discuss um, alerting patrons about specific programming but only on but not like in a I can go to the library website or see it or I can come to the library and see flyers but I can only get notification of it if I'm on a certain social media platform Mm. or on an email list do you you consider that to be ethical it gets it it gets a little weird right Um, so Designing for a greater a greater common denominator in this line of thinking would suggest, you know, you treat all social media the same, you treat all traditional media the same, but that kind of grinds against our, like, more anticipatory services, uh, things that are tailored to you based off your interests, right? I'm really interested in anticipatory design, and I like the idea of, you know, the user experience for Amanda is just Amanda's user experience, and... You know, hopefully we aren't <laughs> like taking information away that you or content away that you are actually interested in. I think the main difference here is um, targeting and personalizing based off of like a hunch demographics versus targeting and personalizing based off of what users themselves have either opted into or communicated their interests in. So. I can see, like, when, like, let's take, like, a marketing newsletter. Like, someone gets on a newsletter, maybe there's a, as they sign up, I don't know, maybe they indicate what their interests are. Or you know from their past browsing behavior, because we're being creepy with their data, like, what they're <laughs> interested in in general. And, you know, so by virtue of their input, their input either being just their behavior or more specific, I am interested in X, Y, and Z, these things are tailored to you. Um, same with Facebook. And the Facebook is kind of interesting because, I mean, you can literally just throw out whatever you want on there. It's not the best strategy, but users tailor that. Like, what users see on the newsfeed is tailored to them by their behavior. Sometimes they click that little arrow and say, I don't want to see this, or they'll engage with it. But whether or not they just, like, look at it long enough is going to determine whether they get more of that kind of content later. So... I I feel better about it if it's opted in. You're not intentionally like excluding somebody. When you develop for like an iOS app, you're excluding literally everybody who doesn't have <laughs> is on an iOS device. Have an app, go for it. But I think prioritizing that before you have a maybe less interesting but 
greater reaching like website. I you know I I think I think the prioritization and the I think the prioritization is the ethical component, not whether or not you have one or the other. But I think the prerequisite of <laughs> designing for apps, at least for like nonprofits and educational institutions, the, the prerequisite should be like the website. Um, there's a lot there. So like this, um, like Weinberg's amendment to Dieter Rahm's Ten Principles of Design uh, adds any effort to influence the user's agency or behavior in the, is in the spirit of their own positive well-being. And I, my tangent was about like apps and, and providing services and stuff, but there's also a component, especially now, um, at this time in our history, with um, our responsibility to intervene when maybe like third-party products or vendors are influencing behavior in an unethical way. So um, a lot of content passes through libraries, right? Uh, whether or not it's something we subscribe to or literally books on our shelves and in general we like like we capital we uh provide all right we don't we like librarians as a discipline are anti anti-censorship mm-hmm. um and in fact we like um putting controversial especially timely controversial items um before users we, you know, like in, in some case, we do, we usually do this like in the building, but we tend to say like, hey, like here are books that are, or here are items that have been banned and censored, maybe because of reasons that you would agree with. So here they are, right in front of you. In the same way, um, a lot of bullshit passes through our through us as well. Fake news has been a major topic recently, and fake news, fake data, fake information. And I think we could all agree that this kind of content is unethical. It's not just lack of ethics. It's it's intentionally unethical. It's intentionally immoral. Um, and they are trying to influence the user's agency or behavior that's not in the spirit of their own positive well-being. As conduits of third-party content... We, de- we design ethical services, and if our ethical services include <laughs> content that we don't create ourselves, do we also have, like, an ethical component to um, intervene, like, here? Like, do we have to intervene with fake news? Like, what is our role? Right? I, and I don't have an answer, uh, but it's just <laughs> something that's been floating around. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I definitely have seen a couple libraries are going to be hosting um, how to detect, uh, you know, it's the whole thing which libraries have been talking about forever, um, information literacy, and but having specific programs designed around the hot topic of fake news and how to spot it. Do you think we need to be more forward? Like, what if in our catalog we have, like, a little, um, at least out of nonfiction, there's, like, a little label on, on covers in our catalog that says, you know what, this doesn't hold up to... Um, peer review <laughs> or 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 you know this like the information in this nonfiction item is either a dated because sometimes there's books or content that's you know like 15 years old or it's blatantly false but, like do we have a do we have a role here and you know it's, it's there's one thing is like teach people how to 
detect, you know, the stuff. But I think that we've been in that business for a long time, and I think I think it has largely failed. Um, and I don't think it's going to get better. Um, I mean, let's be honest. For the most part, like when I was in college and we had our library class that we had to go to, you know, was it one hour credit? It's pretty boring. Because <laughs> a lot of it was just like, did you know that there are books and there are journals? And you're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> well, think about that then. Like, you're the you're the user. You're the student. It's like, do you not look or expect like your search results won't include bullshit. I mean, like the, you know the whole the whole movement like libraries are li- a librarian is better than Google is based off this premise, right? If we if the if the search results are a aren't as good or as powerful as Google search res- results can be because of their computational um, esteem, like li- libraries can never have that much data about a person, and we can't present the results. And in the same way that Google can, then our main step up is that the results have been curated by informed individuals, and that's more bonus than not. You know, do do we trust the algorithm, or do we intervene? I part of me thinks like, you know what, this is a, a service that maybe we quietly provide, but maybe we should provide more loudly. It's like, hey, it's like we will vet out the bullshit. You know, maybe that's going to turn, you know, 48% of the population against us in the next voting cycle. (laughs) But the more I talk about it, the the more I think it's hard not to, I don't know, like not to intervene. Like if if we are ethical institutions with ethical services, how do, how, how do we justify letting unethical things in like pollute our services we provide the catalog. We provide the search algorithm. We prov- we curate and collect and subscribe to all the all the data because this is an, ex- an incredibly expensive, time-consuming process. We do this so that people don't have, or pe- so that folks have access to publicly funded um, scientific research and also like popular materials or whatever. You know, this this is a core we, thing. But we you know also, what? you know, like. But like when bad stuff like pollutes it, like what do we do? Like I don't know. Wait, wasn't there someone last year or um, John, someone on Twitter that was um, tweeting at one of the major database providers because they found out that um, the search results were just like, like extremely like racist and stuff and sexist. That was a big thing. I don't know who if there was like a one person tweeting but um there was definitely somebody that had you know they were fighting the good fight i th- i think I, I think i might have been like code for lib 2016 or or um like um like lib tech conference like like one of one of those where the keynote was a uh, I apologize for getting this name wrong. I'm not. I'm not looking at anything. I've pretty much got everything minimized on my screen. Um, I I believe her name was like Sophia no- Nobel, something like that. She provided a or she did a keynote about um, algorithmic bias. Uh, I think, um, and there's been a bunch of people who have done this as well. I will, and, and the whole thing is like, yeah, it's like you, yeah, you search. Um, urban like in like a google image search and you get a bunch of like um black women in um in what and just like you know regular clothes they wear to school or whatever and you search um I don't know, something like professional or whatever and it's all 
white women in like business suits <laughs> or, or something like that, right? So, um, and that, that, that there's an algorithmic bias. That's not just the problem of Facebook. Like Facebook fake news. Um, I have I have thoughts. I don't think Facebook is at fault. I think this is, this is an algorithmic thing. Google is not the only one. At fault, it is an algorithmic thing. I'm, I guess there's some blame for the algorithm, but you know, come on. But it's not. It's not just a problem uh, around the you know those big two windows into the internet. This is an, there is bias in our library algorithms and our search algorithm. You know, so um, the point is that there is bias in an algorithm, and so what do you do about it? It, it, it was like the topic du jour of that time, and, and still continues to be. So there were several talks in the same window that I was really fascinated with. Um, someone kind of wrote like, "Well, so what do you do? What do you do with algorithmic bias? Do you curate it? You know, you intervene. But how do you intervene without bias? <laughs> it's a problem, and it's a worthy problem to talk about, and it's not an easy one to solve. But it's we have to think about it. Yes. Yeah, and I'm always thinking about this stuff from the practical point of view, and I'm just like, like a lot of our databases are actually here in Connecticut are purchased by the state, and so we, you know, I mean, like even if it was someone that we would hired ourselves, um, but we can't really go in there and make big changes to it. So yeah, I mean, like yeah, I think this is a good exercise for like the bigger picture, but how to deal with it like in day-to-day is it feels impossible in some ways. The question is like where where is the funding coming from? So for the state specifically, you know, these are tax-funded library databases that are shared by all, not just, you know, the, the, the patrons of Darien, but also every other library effectively yep. like in the state. So during the acquisition process, you know, the questions that we should be asking when subscribing or whomever subscribes, uh, you know, the, the vendors have to be held accountable too. Like, and, and the ethical the ethical impact on just, like, the, the web design, you know, the, the, all this great information, um, if, if you can't access it on any device on just about any connection in it, you know, I'm just going to say it, like in a relatively easy manner, like, you know, um, then it it fails in ethical principle. And you shouldn't pay for it. You know, the vendor shouldn't be paid for it. We have this database called uh, Flipster, which I really like. Um, It's a a magazine. um, It's a yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a magazine provider. And so we've pretty much gotten rid of our physical magazines and swapped our subscriptions to, um, to Flipster. So Flipster does something right. There's so many that do it wrong. Um, that's not even worth like naming. Most of them do it wrong. But Flipster does something right. You don't need to download the stupid Flipster app to, <laughs> to look at the magazines. You can access they, their mobile web app is really good. The, the iOS app, better. Like, no doubt about it. Designed for the purpose, designed for the form factor, designed for known specifications. But the web app makes it really easy to 
you know, like read Cosmo or whatever just on your phone. And um, everything, you know, all the content is hyperlinked and you can flip around and zoom in or whatever. Perfect. Um, and that makes, and, and then that means that Flipster can be, for the most part, um, accessed by a greater number of people who paid for Flipster. Um, without, you know? I haven't tested it myself, but I did see. I believe Overdrive and 3M now both have it so that you can read in the browser. I don't know how good it is, though. That is Overdrive's... That is a smart move. That is a good business move, and it's yeah, a, it's good for libraries, too. I do have other thoughts about Overdrive um, that um, are generally positive for a user, but negative for the library. Um, but, um, That's another talk. article about it. It's another talk. I don't know if in this episode we we certainly didn't solve the world's problems. We think about the accessibility. We talk about the accessibility a lot. It's gotten to the point where accessibility is becoming core to much more than it was, what, like two years ago. I think ethics is the next facet to really be concerned with at the beginning of the creation of the new service. The there's the, the ethics of algorithmic bias. There's the ethics of our role in fake news. The ethics about how we design our digital services, but also like our physical services. I'm like, can, can you imagine? Like, there's this non-reader persona who is largely, you know, like non-readers who haven't read a book in the last year or ever um, are not likely to be library users. However, um, that persona is generally described as being potentially older, um, low income, low education, middling access to the internet uh, from home. So, you know, you're not going to, like, as just as a business proposition, you're never, ever going to be able to reach them if they can't access your, if they're, if they're intending to access your website um, from whatever... Um, internet portal they have, but can you imagine like that same persona wandering in for the first time? Maybe you successfully convinced them to check out the library, or there's a function that they're interested in, or, or whatever. Um, but like, I guess I can't think of anything specific, but I can see like the actual layout of the space, or perhaps the the items that are featured when you come in, and the events featured that could potentially offend or turn them away. I want to print out this document so that I can take it to the DMV or wherever. What do you mean I need to give you my ID or I need to go register for a library card in order to get onto a computer to print out this one page? Right. Or And what do you mean like to register for a library card? I have to give you my... A piece of mail. A piece of mail. I have to give you data. What are you going to do with that data? I don't trust you. Yeah. So you know what? We should definitely talk about this next time because we are... Over our time for now. We are. See you all next time. All right, bye. Thanks, everybody.
I, I just got to say, I think Overdrive is positioning to uh, offer features directly to patrons without the library intermediate, but that's just my guess. But you're going to see it in 2017 or 2018, and then hashtag Michael was right. Um, anyway, so so this is like... <laughs>